Hey, Shelly, do you remember the days of being in corporate talent acquisition? Oh, absolutely. Every time the phone rang, it was another staffing agency claiming to be innovative and different. I used to wonder when someone would truly elevate the industry. Well, hold on to your hat here because that's exactly what Van Hack has done. Shelly, picture this a closed community of pre verified tech talent ready to relocate to Canada with all the paperwork taken care of. Sounds too good to be true? Well, not anymore. Van Hack has made it a reality. They have built the community of skilled software developers eager to make the move, and they handle the entire immigration process. And that's not all. They're taking it up a notch. Companies with offshore development teams, listen up. Van Hack's introducing the Canadian Engineering Office. Move your entire dev team to Canada, and Van Hack handles all the nitty-gritty details of immigration and relocation. So can you imagine, Serge? The applause from your CIO if you were to walk into his office and bring this solution to the table. Shelly, every time I walk into an office, I get applause. But that's not all. (laughs) The best part is they've got certified immigration consultants on board who've done this countless times. They understand that every family situation is unique. Revolutionize the way you recruit, relocate, and retain talent because when it comes to innovation in the talent acquisition world, Van Hack is leading the charge. Get ready to be the hero of your company. Check out vanhack.com today. Welcome to the Recruitment Flex with Serge and Shelly. I'm Serge. And I'm Shelly. And we talk all things recruitment starting right now. Bonjour and welcome to the Recruitment Flex. Shelly, I got to admit, every time we have one of our guests today, I'm a little bit nervous because he's so quick-witted. He's so fast on the draw that I'm like, can I keep up? But I (laughs) am extremely excited about this episode Shelly, you got to introduce our guest. Yes. Thank you, Serge. I am very pleased to have on the show again for a fifth time. I would even have him on again for 50 more times because you're (laughs) right. I love his sense of humor. I think comedy might have been his calling at one point in life and decided Mm. to go into employer brand. But we actually have two guests. So we are very honored to have Marcus Body Solutions and Strategy at 33. I'll have to hear more about where that name came from. And of course, my favorite, the one, the only James Ellis from the Employer Brand Labs and affectionately known as the Employer Brand Nerd. Not always affectionately, let's be fair. (laughs) So you're a hero to us all. Aren't all podcasters frustrated comedians? Can we just put our cards to the table? We do this just because open mic night in our dining rooms every single episode. (laughs) I never thought of that, but that's such a good point. That's what we're doing. There's no hecklers. I'm going to start with you, James. I can't imagine anyone in our audience that has never heard of you because you know I have bought like multiple copies of your book and sent it out to all my friends, all my customers. It's a must read. Talent Chooses You was and is the best book ever written for employer brand. So I could do your bio, but I think you could do it much better. Tell us, how did you get into this business? 
thanks. And I'm thrilled to be here. All joking aside, always thrilled to be here. And I know Marcus is giving me eyes like, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> this is home turf for me. This is my podcast away from podcasts. So I've been doing employer brand for about 10 years now. I checked the calendar and I went, oh, this double digit there. Look at that. Huh? Okay. I've done it all around everything, agency side, in-house consulting. I've done it all. I love employer branding. I do suspect there is at least one person who listens to this podcast who goes, oh, another James episode. Skip. <laughs> I'll see y'all next week. I know I got that effect on some people, but I'm all about employer brand and how it can help recruiters do their job more effectively. So James, actually a funny story, and I think I sent this to you. So myself and Shelly went to a recruiter event here in Calgary, and someone came up to us and be like, hey, we need you to sign this book. I'm like, what are you talking about? You want us to sign a book? So they brought your book, Employer Branding for Small Business, to the event and had us sign the foreword where myself and Shelly had written. That was a first for me. I actually took a picture of me signing <laughs> that book and sent right, it to okay, my look, wife guy, look. saying, look how popular we are. Like <laughs> we're signing James Ellis' book. So I thought that was a funny story. It was great. It was very honoring. And when I say our TA community has absolutely gobbled up your books, that's proof point. This was what we call the Canadian Recruiter Networking Group. It was like 90 recruiters from every industry. Well, so you um, know you've sold at least one book, but I, uh, Shelly, I'm seeing Marcus over here and he's like, what the yeah. hell is going <laughs> on? I'm giving so much love to my partner here. I was getting there. I was getting there. Now, Marcus, I have been listening to the podcast that you and James have started up. Love listening to you. You've got some awesome ways of explaining things. Just love <laughs> it. But for our audience that doesn't know who you are, tell us a bit about your background. It's awful. I'm, it's going to sound like I'm trying to one-up James, but I was working this out the other day. I've been in employer branding for 20 years, I think now. I think virtually everyone in this sector, I fell into it. I was a sales guy, so I used to sell advertising space in magazines where people would ring up when they wanted to place a job ad, and I would book that in. And eventually, I was like, well, I've got to go and find out what these agents actually do all day. And that was about 20 years ago, and I thought I'd do it for a year or two, and I've been doing it now for 20 years. And you know, the last 15 years of it, doing employer brands and EVPs and messaging frameworks and purposes and values. And I work for an agency called 33 who are based in London and New York and Bristol. So we do a a lot of work all over the world. Well, Marcus, if you've been doing this for 20 years, you must have started when you were really young. (laughs) I I wish. Unfortunately, my hairline is receding at the rate that I I am aging. (laughs) Receding? Come on. (laughs) <laughs> That's an active verb. I got, I'm all past tense on that bad. <laughs> well, so for the audience that hasn't listened to the podcast, it's called a brand plan. You can find it on all major podcast players and it is fantastic. Most of the episodes have been an hour. I think you have 10 episodes yeah. right now, but tell us the story behind the brand plan podcast. And I'll start with you, Marcus. Well, the way I tend to tell it is that there was a gap in the market for an Anglo-American podcast after Harry and Meghan reneged on the deal with Spotify, and we could fill that gap with some employer branding. But I, I guess we there's loads of great podcasts out there. I really love the podcasts in this space, and there were some really brilliant ones. But we felt there was this opportunity to do something that was a bit more about the nitty gritty and the strategy of it. There's lots of really brilliant case studies out there and lots of really wonderful yeah. interviews with the people in, in the area. But I guess part of it is James and I have answered a lot of the same questions repeatedly throughout our careers as we work with clients. And we thought, why don't don't we put that somewhere where anyone can go and access it? 
So talk a little bit more, if you would, about your target audience. I know in TA, I, I can't get enough. How did you define who needs to hear this? I think what it is, Marcus and I are passionate about this idea. So much of recruiting, so much of talent acquisition is tactic driven. It is headcount driven. It is squeeze more juice out of that lemon, just keep squeezing harder and harder. And we've reached broadly this limit of how much you can squeeze out of lemon. And what needs to happen is to think more strategically. And too often when we're in a rut or we're stuck, we look at what marketing does. We look at what sales does, or we look at what's the cool AI tool. It's not about tools. It's not about tactics. It's sometimes it's about having a clear sense of strategy. And honestly, we look around the podcast and even just the entire ecosystem, there's not a lot of talk about strategy, right? If you look at articles about you should have a talent strategy, that's the end of the article. You should have one. What is it? How do you make one? Why is it helpful? No one talks about that. They just go, you should have this thing. And as an employer brander, I feel that pain because I know a lot of times for the last five years, you know, Harvard Business Review and like, is that you should have an employer brand. And people go, great, I should. And you're like, but why? What is it? And it's led to these weird kind of blind alleyways where what are we doing this for? So I wanted to partner up with someone who I knew thought in strategy, talked in strategy. I had the sense that the 33 agency is really strong in its strategy work. And I knew that they were super well-known in the UK. And I wanted to bridge this gap to say, look, I have an audience. They have an audience. Let's work together. Let's find a space to talk about true strategy. And if you think of the first 10 episodes as kind of like season one, it's been what is strategy and how does that apply to talent acquisition? Yeah. And I think over eight, nine, 10 hours, whatever the math is, and <laughs> don't ask me, we've gotten <laughs> into it. I hope that if someone listened to all 10, they come out the other end going, wow, I know how to think in terms of strategy far better. I ask better questions. I ask better questions of my vendors, of my agencies, of myself, of my people, of my leadership to have better conversations to lead to better outcomes. I think you're completely right. The strategy part is definitely missing in a world where if you Google what is employment brand, what is talent strategy, you'll get top 10 tactics that you yeah. can leverage for your employment brand. And it is not strategies, just pure tactics. But you mentioned there in a the conversation that you get a lot of questions and we do too. And one question that I have a really hard time answering, and I think you covered it really well in your episode, is measuring employer branding impacts. And I'm going to ask you really plainly, like, how should leaders and practitioners measure employment brand impact? And I'll start with you, James. Oh, see, I was going to ask Marcus because he's the trained engineer and he actually knows how the math works. Me, I just, I open my phone and get the, the, the little buttons that I make things happen. Look, what's great about the podcast and what gr is great about how Marcus and I talk about this is we come from very different points of view and very different approaches with the same goal. I think of it measuring in terms of when you decided to buy, and I'm using bunny ears and air quotes because however you purchase it, whether it's hiring somebody or bringing someone on board or whatever you do, when you wanted employer brand, there was a problem you were trying to solve with it. The only metric that matters, did it solve the problem? That's it, right? We, we yeah. get so caught up in the weeds and get lost in our, and eating our own tails and all that good stuff about all, because there's so many knock-on effects of it. But the first and probably only question is, did it solve it? Now, Having solved it, if you want to say, what's the new problem we can solve with it, change all your metrics. That's my approach. Now, Marcus tends to come from a more systemic approach. He has, let's be fair, he has bigger clients than I do and bigger budgets and they have bigger stages on which to work. So I think he has access to way more data than I do. And I think he has a slightly different approach to it. 
Well, I, I don't know. I agree with everything you've said, though. Always my approach with clients is less is more. It's better to have one really good measure that everyone agrees matters than to have 15 measures that no one's quite yeah. convinced with. And I think a lot of people make the mistake of trying to measure too many things, and they'd be better mm-hmm. at finding one thing and going, right, that's the one that we're going to move. That's the needle that we are going to focus on. And it might only be for a limited period of time before you then go, we've done that job. Now we're going to focus on a different measure, and we're going to look at that. The more measures you have, actually, the more difficult life becomes and the more you know, confused you get about what you're trying to do at the moment. But we appreciate you're often not always the person in charge of that. You've got different stakeholders throwing different measures at you, and marketing want this, and brand want that, and TA want this. The more you can simplify it, the easier your life will be. Three measures is better than 10. <laughs> well, can I just ask, Marcus, can you give me an example of a client of yours where they came to you with a big problem? Because recruiters are very tactical. What is your referral to offer ratio? What is your applicant to hire ratio? We're very measure driven. And I think it would really help people relate. What was the big problem they came to you with? And employer brand was the solution. I'd say one that immediately springs to mind. I remember I had a client come to me. It was an American company who had a workforce all over the world. And they came to us saying it was actually an employee engagement problem. They came and said, look, we're getting kicked every year in the staff survey by the European staff. What are we doing wrong? And they made a smart move, which was let's go and ask someone who isn't American what our problem is, because they might have a better picture, because that's obviously some of what's going wrong. And we did some work for them. And it just turned out that an awful lot of the communication they were doing internally, no one was understanding. We knew that our biggest objective wasn't really to come up with an amazing set of selling points. It was just to say stuff more clearly and make sure that we had something that everyone in Bucharest understood. And actually, it was a really simple thing. And then the next year, we were able to see they went from like 30% positive engagement to 80% positive engagement. We didn't actually change what they were saying at all. We just changed how simply they were saying it and made it much more unambiguous. That was a kind of purely internal comms thing. But that's still an employer brand project going on because we hadn't changed the employer reality. We changed the perception of that reality and the Mm. understanding of that reality and, and the communication around who they were as an employer. You know, it's probably one of the most successful things I've ever done. It was really easy once we'd worked out what we were trying to do. And that's the idea of strategy, because it's not about, okay, I have this problem, I'm going to buy a tool to solve it. Because as much as TA wants to think there's a solution off the shelf you just apply, it's not about the solution. The hammer is great, but the hammer doesn't make the house. And it started with the question of, well, what is the real problem? What's the underlying problem? That is strategic thinking of asking the question, what's underneath this? What's causing this? What's the root of this? And is there a different way of solving that problem? You know, and I think Marcus will agree with me that any given problem, there's at least a hundred solutions. Yeah. And some of them are really cheap and some of them are really expensive and some of them are real slow and some of them are real fast. And it's a question of what are you really trying to solve and what's the best way to solve? And that's the heart of strategic thinking. I, I agree. If I pick the like the five most successful projects I've ever done, it's because we spent the first two months figuring out what really the question is. And then the answer becomes a lot easier. Have you seen the metrics that you measure be different based on the problem that you're trying to solve? I'm going to make the assumption, yes, but what's your thoughts on that? Absolutely, yeah. So for a lot of the clients I work with, their problem is visibility. It's not what do people think of them as an employer, it's no one is thinking of them as an employer at all, in which case you need to measure awareness. And you're going to be really focused on how many people are looking at what we say, how many people click on things, 
some of the clients I work with, that's not their problem. We work with McDonald's and Accenture. Everyone's heard of McDonald's and Accenture. There's no point measuring awareness there. That's not their problem. Their problem is what do I think of them? And that's the thing that you then need to start measuring and start affecting. So absolutely. And you may go through different stages as a business where different measures are important. And that will completely change what you should be doing, but also what you should be measuring as well. James, what key questions should I be asking? If I'm starting this from scratch, I'm new to talent branding within an organization, what questions should I be asking internally to determine where I should be going? Yeah, it's, you know, the, the Toyota asked the five whys. There's all sorts of like means by which you uncover, but that's the idea. So yeah. uncover. In business today, we are beset with communications and tools and platforms and issues and information and politics and all this stuff. And so anything that's a problem usually is buried under 14 layers of junk like yeah. Slack messages and pings and emails and this and that and policies and the internet and ah, like there's it's all over the map. And so your job is to uncover and to simply say, what's causing that? Where does that come from? Why do I think that's the case? How would I measure that in a way to understand not what the outcome is, but what the input is driving that it's not a, a set of questions. It's simply just being curious to say, okay, I'm faced with this problem. It, didn't come down from the gods, right? It was not a lightning strike that <laughs> Zeus said, ha you got an employee engagement problem. Well, this came from somewhere. Did it come from leadership? Did it come from bad communication? Did it come from bad expectation setting? Did it come from bad hiring? Where did this come from? And all real human questions, it's usually multi-determined. There's a lot of factors that go into it. In, in Marcus's case, I bet if you dug all over, you'd say, okay, yeah, Bucharest is having this problem. There's, there's a clarity issue, but you could have seen other issues like policies made by Americans don't fly in Bucharest, which probably true, right? There's a lot of ways approaching that. So I'm trying to look for what is the simplest, easiest, cheapest, direct solution. And usually that answer is not AI or technology or platforms or more of something. It's usually a, we got to scale something back to make some room. Is there anybody at work who feels like, man, I got time to kick my heels up and just hang out and see what's what? No, we are all running through the maze as fast as humanly possible, making turns as fast as we can, reacting to things and wondering where the hell are we in this maze? The answer there is not to run faster. The answer is to stop for a moment and say, what are we trying to do here? What are we mm. trying to achieve? I think there's a brilliant question to ask yourself at the start of any project is, we tend to ask ourselves, what could I add that might solve this problem? But sometimes it is, what, what could I take away that might solve this problem? Is there something I should just stop doing that might help with this problem? And, and that can often help. That makes like every TA or employer brand or TA leader's New Year's resolution should be, is there something I can stop doing? If for no other reason, then you can't do anything new until you make room by stopping something else. It might not be directly solving your problem, but goodness, there's all sorts of kind of vestigial crap that you're dealing with every single day. Stop something. One of the things I believe when we start mixing our terminology, and I know we're not doing it to baffle bullshit or confuse people, but we use it interchangeably. Somebody will call it their employment value proposition, and they see it as the four pillars of value. Others will call it the employer brand, meaning how do we treat employees? And then they start listing off benefits. Oh, we have medical, we have dental, we have a savings plan. When it comes to the employee experience, we always think of that as that is your employment value proposition. Can anybody give me a straight fucking answer on employer brand? 
please? I'll answer that one. No. The reality is that there are so many different definitions flying around. And actually, even within the agencies and the people who've been doing this for 20 years, we still argue about this. It is confusing and it's really annoying for you as when you're trying to do your job that everybody is using these phrases slightly differently. It's really important to decide what you are going to mean by these things and then check that when you're looking at a piece of data from someone else or a piece of advice from someone else, just check what they meant by that phrase. Because some people will say, oh, hey, Marcus, have a look at our new EVP. It's this. And I go, oh, that's a strap line. Okay. That's not what I think an EVP is. But if you do, okay, that's a strap line. Fine. Let's talk about your strap line. And I will shift to use their terminology during the time that I'm working with that client. And it is very messy and confusing. And what I don't want to do is be the person who adds yet another definition to that list. And now you've got 34 definitions to deal with, not 33. I think find a definition you like and then be really crystal clear with anyone you're working with, your definition that you're using, and then you can't go wrong. James, what's your take there? Well, I'm going to add an extra layer of complexity. What you, <laughs> of think of, what you think of employer brand is when you're a 500 company is not what your employer brand is when you're a 5,000 company is not what your employer brand is when you're a 500,000 person company, right? The usage, the idea, the conceptualization, because you're bigger, this idea of an EVP, which you'll notice we have not defined for you uh, there, Shelly. It's like a magic trick. It's all misdirection. If you're a 500 person company, an EVP can be a strap line. It could be a tagline. It could be a hashtag. It could be something just, we do this. It could be a promise. It, it could take so many formats. It can have pillars. It doesn't have to have pillars. And as you grow, you start to realize, wow, this employer brand idea has a lot of uses and has a lot of value. And selling this thing meant to attract people is also retaining people. It's also changing expectations. It's changing our conversation with employees internally and their engagement. As we get bigger, we start to think of it not just a, hey, let's slap that tagline on everything that moves. It's more about how do we express it to different audiences? How do we express it to nurses and doctors because they're different people? How do we express it to different localities and geographies and different languages and different needs? And as you get bigger yet, you start to realize that brand used to be an amazing tagline that you could slap on your website. Suddenly, it's too hard. It needs to be localized to these different audiences. And, and when you localize it, it changes shape. It changes expectations. Employer brand is a concept. It's a metaphor. It is an abstract idea. It doesn't live anywhere except in your heads, which means what I think it is, what Marcus thinks it is, what Serge thinks it is, is all right, but it's all different. And that's fine. So you can't define it. But what you can do is still use it as a tool. What's the line? All models are wrong, but some models are useful. That's the same way brands work. Mm -hmm. It's not a thing. You can't constrain it. You can't define it too hard. But if you can use it wisely, it's effective and it doesn't need to be quite so cut and dry. I mean, all I'd add is, about 10 years ago, I was working with a new client and they asked me to come in and explain to them what an EVP is. And that client was the London Business School, which is where the term was coined. And so they didn't know what the answer was. Oh. And, and don't feel bad if you're not clear exactly what it is, because even the business school that created the phrase wasn't 100% sure what the phrase meant and wanted to hear our opinion on it. So you're not alone. Can we just get to an agreement on this podcast and it becomes a standard of what we call it? Because right now it's clear as mud. James, you mentioned a couple of things that I think are really interesting. And reading your book, Employer Branding for Small Business, which everything in that book could be applied at a much higher scale. And we've talked about that. Let's talk a little bit about what you mentioned, 500 employees, 5,000, 500,000 because there is a difference of how you approach that. So James, what's your take there? Okay, so let's say you're a company of 500. Chances yeah. are everybody's under one, maybe two roofs. 
You can walk around, you can talk to people, you can glad hand them, you can give them a thing, you can explain something to them. Chances are, if you're 500 people, you have 20 requisitions. As the employer brand owner, you can look at every single one. You can make sure it says what it's supposed to say, that you've given your kind of employer brand perspective and applied it to these things. The career site is something you have direct access to. The LinkedIn channel is something you probably have direct access to, or at least split ownership with somebody over on the marketing side. You have so much impact because it's just 500 people. 5,000 people, well, you're on three continents. You're all over the place. You've got lots of different roles. There are a couple hundred requisitions. There's no way you can read every single one of them. What you're starting to do is realize the employer brand, whereas at a small company, you have direct control over. You can touch it as close as touching it as you could. But at 5,000, what you're trying to do is keep everybody excited. You're sparking interest. You're an evangelist. You are an advocate for this idea. You're a person uh, waving a flag and banging a drum, getting everybody excited. And the job is not to own the employer brand. The job is to light that fire in hiring managers' minds about what employer branding can do and then train them and be a resource to them so that they can carry the spirit of that thing. Five hundred. Thousand, well, that's a whole different ballgame altogether because suddenly you have to have teams and you're creating so much content. And honestly, you don't have to worry about a thousand requisitions. You have to worry about a thousand videos you're creating this year, like the level of complexity and you have less and less control over it, but you still quote unquote own that brand. So you have to find brand new ways to spark people's imagination and get them excited and keep them in bounds. Now, to be perfectly honest, I think Marcus has a lot more experience in the 5,000 to 500,000 size companies than I do. So I want to hear his answer to that. I'd agree with absolutely everything you said. The biggest difference is that if you've got a few hundred people under a roof, you all know each other, you have a culture, you don't necessarily even need to write it down, that already exists, and you could all describe it in the same way. But as soon as you get to a big global business that exists in lots of different countries and lots of different locations within those countries, you're going to get a really different culture going on within the different offices. And actually, the reality of the employment existence might be quite variable around the world because it might need to be to adapt to those local cultures. So you can't have a pedantic answer anymore for what's it like to work here? Because the answer is going to be different in Bangalore than it is in London, than it is in Calgary, than it is in Paris. And it has to be for legal reasons, and it has to be for cultural reasons. So you have to have a bit more of a federated answer to this. Well, we always talk about A, B, and C. But you can phrase A, B, and C however you like in your particular location in a way that makes sense using stories that will resonate there. And you have to trust that a lot more. But it also depends how homogenous your business is. How do you make sure that it's not disjointed, right? So you have an <laughs> overall brand and now you've got a little bit different in each market. There's a couple of different bits. There's the aligning the messaging, which is about focusing on what it's about rather than exactly how it's worded. If you're obsessing over whether that third word in sentence two is collaboration or teamwork, you're doomed to failure. If you get very pedantic about how you're phrasing it, you're in a world of trouble. And then there's the look of the thing. It's actually easier to align the look of the thing. It's easier to go, every advert will be purple and have donkeys in it. That's an easier thing to roll out. You might have to check that donkeys aren't culturally sensitive in a particular country, but you can find a thing. I think, again, though, back to the thing about strap lines, some people get very excited about a strap line. You cannot find a two-word phrase that is going to resonate the same in every country in the world, even if the people in those countries speak English. That doesn't exist. So you're going to have to understand either we have the same phrase everywhere and we accept that people are going to read it differently, or if we want everyone to feel the same way about us, we can't have one strap line in every single place because it won't be interpreted the same way. And you can decide to do either of those two things, but you have to really consciously go, which one of those am I trying to achieve? Do I want everyone to see the same two words 
or do I want everyone to feel the same way? In which case, I might have to go for different ways of expressing that in different places. That was fantastic. Thank you, Marcus. <laughs> this is why we hang out. This is fun. Oh my God. Because you hear these stories, it's urban legend, right? Where you've got the executive team, they're both engineers. And the only reason that employer brands stalled was because they were literally going at each other's throats in the boardroom over the word collaboration versus teamwork. It's true. Can you talk a little bit about maybe some emerging trends? Or do you see trends or innovations that are having a really positive impact on employer brand? What's hopeful on the horizon? What I would say, like in, in the 20 years I've been doing this, the principles haven't changed. The principles of being a good employer, working out what aspects of that are true and then finding interesting ways of saying it, that hasn't changed at all. What has changed is the way in which you're going to do that. And that keeps changing and the actual mechanisms by which that's happened. I think one of the really fascinating things that's happened in the last five or 10 years is that there used to be a person who was in charge of putting out all the job ads because they had to go through a print process and there was a person who checked they were all good. And now that doesn't happen. There are line managers putting things into an HR system that automatically puts it out onto the web. There's a lot more kind of like uncontrolled and disparate kind of communications happening from companies. And actually a lot of clients, when I really ask them is, do you know what you're putting out into the world in all of these job ads? The honest answer from a lot of them is no, because so much of it is auto. And this is where I think things are exciting but also dangerous with tech is are you sure of the quality of the stuff that is happening through this technology or is it just happening very quickly and that's very exciting and no one had to do any admin and we're all very pleased that we're not doing any admin but actually there's a real danger there that you're no longer really even aware of what you're saying to the outside world and i quite often say to guys when was the last time you looked at all the automated emails coming out of your system most people who apply to you get a rejection email. When was the last time anybody looked at what that rejection email actually says? Probably the single most frequent piece of communication your company does is say, sorry, you haven't got the job. That might not have been updated in the last 10 years, that message. You might want to go and take a look at it. Just check what it says. And it might be fine, but it might not be. That's the exciting thing about technology is it allows you to do a lot more communication. And potentially with AI, a lot more personalized communication, the danger is you will be less aware of what you are doing because it is all being done by technology. And that's going to be a lot harder for you to keep an eye on and keep a grip on and go, is it all good? Whereas in the bad old days, we used to be able to get out all the ads that a client had run and put them on a table and look at them and go, are those all on brand? And I had clients where we would literally do that on a monthly basis. We would put all the print ads out on the table and we knew what their brand was doing. You can't do that now. It'd be far too difficult. Yeah, I've had at least two conversations, usually involving the development of the career site. And for whatever reason, the Mm. career site tends to attract stakeholders or associated stakeholders. Like I put bait out, like it's like a pork (laughs) chop and all the dogs come running and comms shows up and legal shows up and hiring managers show up and leadership show. Everyone wants a piece of this. And the conversation is always this. They argue over, well, we can't say that thing and we need to control what we say. And I turn to, and it's always either the lawyer or the comms person. And I say, if you think you can control this, when was the last time you looked at what your recruiters were saying to candidates? And you watch the penny drop as they realize, as they do the math of numbers of recruiters times number of candidates times number of Oh my God. Like it's just terrifying. Hopefully it opens that conversation up. It doesn't always. But I think to Marcus's point, employer brand as an idea hasn't changed. What, what surprises me, the anti-trend is in a lot of ways, employer brand is simply the natural evolution of what good recruiting is. Like I've met recruiters who 
did not know what employer branding was. I looked at what they did and went, you're doing employer branding all day long. You just don't call it that. You just do it really well. You just go, well, how would I do better recruiting? I would do this. And you're like, yeah, that's called employer branding. And for that being true, you'd expect more recruiters to want employer branding. And I think the thing that throws me is that 10 years in, I still see a lot of friction from recruiters who don't want any piece of this. Whether it's from, hey, I did it one time, it didn't work, it's all stupid, it's a scam, it's a bunch of bull, or my buddy did it once and it was stupid and it was expensive, or whatever reason. But that's the thing that baffles me. It makes recruiters better. It makes recruiters' lives a little easier. I won't say easy. I will never say recruiters' lives are ever easy, but it makes their job a little bit easier. And put to their own devices, they would have built it organically anyway. They call it something different, but it's the same idea. So that's the anti-trend. It's the thing I'd expected to see by now, but I still see so much resistance to employer brand thinking. I'm glad you mentioned career sites because career sites, I get the perception from a lot of TA leaders that employment branding is a career site. And myself <laughs> and Shelly have had this argument on Recruitment Flex many times that career sites are overrated. People do not actually go in depth of your career sites. They're going to see if there is jobs. And if there is not jobs, they're not reading your copy. They don't care. So how do we change that? Because it's the perception out there from everyone, from executives to TA leaders. Marcus, I see you nodding. What's your take here? So we've got hard data that shows, unfortunately, most people are not reading your career site. What they do is they see a job listing and they click, yeah, I'm interested in that. And then they yes. go straight through into that job listing in your ATS. And they don't read your career site. They might read it later on when you give them a second interview. That's the yes. point at which, okay, you are yeah. interesting enough. I'm going to come do some research and find out what your values are and watch the video. with the So there is still some value in the stuff that you have, but it's all in the wrong place. If you want them to look at that stuff, you need to put it into the job listing because that's the thing they're actually going to read. And that's a huge change that's happened. Very few of you are doing anything to drive people to the homepage of your career site. If you're not doing anything to drive people to the homepage of your career site, no one is going to look at it. If all you actually do is put out job postings that go straight into the ATS, that is exactly what people are going to look at. They are going to click where you told them to, and you've never actually tried to get them to go to the careers page. There are exceptions. If you're a highly desirable employer within a particular yeah. sector, yeah, people will come to the homepage of your career site because they might go, oh, yes. I wonder what it's like to work there. But that's not true for most of you. And that's not really what's going to happen. They're going to come into that place. So, yeah, I think you can make them better. So we've built a lot of websites for customers that completely flip that idea on the head. And we put content straight into the job postings based on what kind of job posting it is. So it actually appears inside the job listing. If it's a tech job, it gets a little video about what's brilliant about working in tech at this company. But it's in there because that's the only place they're going to look at it. That's where they're going to make the decision. And if you've got a careers website built like a retail website, like a clothing store website, the clothing store expects me to browse all the way around and decide whether I'm going to buy a shirt or some shorts. So they want me to look at all their products. You don't have any job seekers who are going, well, shall I be an accountant for you in Calgary? Or shall I be a project manager for you in Toronto? Literally no one is doing that at all. So there is no point building your website with the presumption that people are going to browse around it. They're not going to. Shouldn't your focus be on the actual elements that the job seekers are seeing? Like uh, the example here is you can have great copy, but the candidate goes and applies and they have to register. Then they have to go through this insane application process. That hurts your employment brand, in my opinion. What's your take, James? Yeah, I take a weird stance at this. I look at it differently. I don't think 
easy is inherently better. If I know that this job is right for me, the amount of obstacles you can put in front of me that would not stop me from applying are legion. Now, the problem, of course, is that HR, who've used ATS's named Workday and the like, who have said, we don't have to make anything easy because everybody wants our jobs. That made sense 10 years ago, but today doesn't. And so, yeah, there is a middle ground to say, look, it should not be onerous. I should not feel or be asked to make an account, which is the dumbest thing ever, to apply for a job. I think the technology is to say, parse my resume into your ATS in a way that makes it simple and easy to use, or just connect to LinkedIn. It's sitting there. Just use it. It's not about being easy. It's simply about understanding that if you've got 60 seconds with the candidate, do you want them going, oh, this is stupid? Or do you want them reading your content? What do you want for them to do? And I think we're overly mm. indexing on how fast can we make it so they can apply with their elbows and nose. I mean, that, that's like the bar that we want to reach. And I think that's the wrong bar. Every touch point is an opportunity to install and instill and reinforce what we're about and what we're offering. And when we're focusing on how fast can we get people to apply, it's the wrong measure. It's the wrong concern. Marcus, you seem like you have yeah. something to say. Keep on going. I was just going right. to say, the, the other thing that's changed is we used to have paper application forms, go back far enough. And when the internet came along, we simply digitized those application forms and said, yeah. right, now do it online rather than on a piece of paper. You don't need all that information at once now. So you don't no. need to know absolutely every single thing about a candidate in order to screen them. You only need to know the things that you're screening them on. So why don't you just ask that? and then screen them. Great, you made it through our screening. Now give us some more information. And now they're more inclined to do that and do that better because you've said you've passed our screening. Whereas if you might have been about to auto-reject me anyway, I don't have a very high level of interest in filling out that enormous form for you. We don't have to ask for all of this information at once anymore, but we still do for no good reason. The perfect example is a truck driver. Why are we asking them to fill out this massive application form while they're on their mobile phone where all we yeah. really need is what's your name, what's your phone number, what's your email address, and do you have your CDL or whatever license that you need exactly. in whatever country? That's all you need. Then you roll with the rest. Yeah. So I do want to jump into our last question. And I feel in the last couple of months that I can call myself an influencer because I was on one of the thousand lists out there. So in a world <laughs> full of influencers, how important is it for recruiters to build that personal brand? Marcus, do you want to start with that? What do you think about personal brand for recruiters? Yeah, I think there's two aspects, right? There's the element to which personal brand will help you do your job of recruiting. But then there's also the extent to which your personal brand will help your career in recruiting and how are you seen within your organization is the other bit to think of. I think there's no question if you are hiring high-end lawyers, it helps if high-end lawyers have heard of you and know that you're not a time waster. That's hugely yeah. important. Whereas if the kind of people you're recruiting are not that kind of audience, it might be less valuable to you. That perception of how you are seen is absolutely essential whether you're an employer branding specialist or a recruiter is are you seen as the kind of person who solves problems and gets stuff done or are you seen as the person who turns up with a pile of flowcharts that is a huge thing on how far you are going to go within your organization and when you move on to your next role the, the one thing i said I, I ran a session for recruiters in the uk a while ago where we looked at personal branding and what became really clear to me really quickly is there were loads of sessions out there that give you employer branding tactics which are great. And I didn't do that. What I did was I did a whole session where I said, what do you want to be known for? Have a long think about what is the adjective you want people to go, ah, oh, Serge or Shelley or James, the word I associate with them is that. 
have a long think about what is that thing that you want people to associate with you? Is it helpful? Is it insightful? Is it strategic? Have a think about the association that you want to build and then start thinking about now what am I doing on LinkedIn? Now what am I doing in in my networks? What are the events I go to? What are the things I say? Because too often I think there's a lot of stuff that's about here's how to become more visible but not nearly enough about, yeah, but now that you are visible, what are you actually going to show people? What's the association that you're going to build? I think that's worth anyone thinking about is what's the idea you want people to have of you so that you can then do more of it and lean into that. If you look at the technology right now, it's so easy to say, I can automate 95% of what a recruiter does. And I'm sorry if this is the first time recruiters you've heard this, but here we are. This is the reality. And to Marcus's point, the technology allows us to spam every channel. There are tricks and tips and hacks and whatever to get more links on LinkedIn and get more likes on LinkedIn and get more engagement on LinkedIn. If your metric is number of followers, there are ways to doing it and there are tools to help you do it. The thing that's missing is a point of view. A recruiter Mm. should have a point of view. Why do they do this? Why do they do this for this company? Why do they want to talk to you? What do you offer them? A point of view is not something you can buy. It is something you build, and it indicates that you have thought and concern and consideration in this space. So if you're a recruiter and all you do is hire lawyers, guess what? You know a lot of lawyers, and you know what lawyers think about and what they care about. You have some thoughts about why they should or when they should or how they should. And you know what? You're not a lawyer, but you have a point of view. If you're data science recruiter, same thing. And the point of view is another name for your brand. And if you have a point of view, those tools cannot replace you. If you don't have a point of view, well, 95% turns into 97% real fast and 97 turns into 100 just as fast. So having a point of view, which you can call a personal brand, you can call it a professional brand, you can call it what you want, but simply saying, To Marcus' point, what do you want to be known for? What is the way you see the world? What is the way you approach the work? Invaluable and only more valuable as the technology automates the Mm. stuff that you used to think your job was before. Wow. Thank you, James. And thank you, Marcus. You just crystallized what I think a lot of people confuse. And that is, I may have 750,000 followers on LinkedIn. But what am I known for? Am I known for just verbal diarrhea? Like I comment on everything, right? Is that going to be flash in the pan? And where will you be? And I hope everyone who's listening, if there's one thing you get out of this episode, it is asking yourself, as you put it, Marcus, very thoughtfully, put some brain power into what do you want to be known for? I want to be known to share the best memes I've decided on LinkedIn. So we'll see how that works out. Marcus and James, this was an absolute pleasure. So Marcus and James, the co-hosts of the Brand Plan podcast, available on all major podcast players. And I want to point Marcus, out, it's on YouTube. And if, if you want to actually see us have that conversation, and they're truncated videos, they're 15, 17 minutes long. It's fun to watch us talk this stuff through. Honestly, as the guy who gets to edit the videos, I love kind of pulling his reaction shots when I say, or my kind of, oh, right, you're, you know, like you're getting under my skin. I love the reaction to it. You can't see it on a podcast podcast, but you can definitely see it on YouTube. Do you know what I love is looking at those videos and I've only seen them on TikTok for some reason is you guys looking at each other. So you've aligned your chair looking at you, which I think was an interesting play. When I first saw it, it caught my attention, but after 10 minutes, felt a little weird for me. I don't know why. Okay. Okay. Uh, But I'm just giving you what I thought, but then I've 
gotten used to it and I actually do like it. So I've had mixed emotions about it. I got to be frank, but it is different, which I quite enjoy. Marcus, where can our audience, if they want to get a hold of you, ask you any questions, what's the best way to get a hold of Marcus Body? Best way to get hold of me is on LinkedIn. All I'd say is everyone tries to spell it wrong. It's Marcus with a C and then Body, B-O-D-Y, just like the word. Everyone tries to look for Marcus Brody and then they never find me. So yes, (laughs) do come and find me on LinkedIn. Always happy to have a chat. And James. They can find you in a thousand yeah, places, yeah. but what's the best place to find LinkedIn you? is probably the best. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's a lot of James Ellis's, but look, I'm the one with the orange background. It's usually pretty easy to spot. So yeah. Ain't James Ellis on LinkedIn. Always there. And James Ellis will be hosting the Disrupt stage on day two, day two. at RecFest in Nashville. With, with Audra Knight. So I am super pumped for that. Okay. I, here's a spoiler, because Audra won't, may not listen to this. I have an outfit picked out that Audra doesn't know I'm wearing. And so she's going to be blown away. And so just be prepared. If you're at RecFest, that's the stage you're going to want to be at. Just putting that out there. James, I have to admit, I'm extremely excited because we are going to be at RecFest. We're hosting a portion of the stage of Disrupt Stage, the same as you on the first day. But what I'm most excited is to finally meet you and see if what I've seen on video is what in real life. It's all real. If so, I better drink a lot of coffee. I'm down to two cups and I'm still like this. It's terrifying. There's something I've altered my DNA on some level. It's complicated. (laughs) Well, thank you for joining us. This was a great episode. Thrilled to be here. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. (laughs) Au revoir. Shelly, let's face it. Texting candidates is the easiest way to hire quicker today. But your cell phone doesn't connect to your ATS. You're sharing your personal number with strangers. That's pretty scary, right, Shelly? And Mm. it's not even legally compliant. Mm, this is where our friends at Rectex come in. They've created simple yet powerful text recruiting software that works with your ATS. Plus, it's designed by recruiters for recruiters, so you know it works. To learn more and book a demo, visit www.rectxt.com, mention the Recruitment Flex, and get 10% off annual plans. Have you ever found yourself scrolling through financial news and wondering, how does any of this affect me? How can I read a major headline and truly understand what impact that has on not only my portfolio, but my life? Well, our goal on the podcast Inside the Street, hosted by Wall Street analysts at Chiffre Partners, is to provide public investors and young professionals with a deeper understanding of the mechanics that drive those major headlines. And what better way to dive into these mechanics and hosting Wall Street analysts themselves to discuss the newest trends in finance firsthand? Well, on our show, we bring you real perspectives from the front line. Hearing these analysts give commentary has made our listeners much more well-versed on the financial markets. This approach to discussion allows our listeners to engage in conversation with much more educated opinions and predictions. So be sure to check out our show, Inside the Street, wherever you find your podcasts.